Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 2 Peter chapter 3. The book of 2 Peter chapter 3. I want you to uh, think back for a, for a moment. January 1st of 2020, how naive we all were back then about what this year would bring us and the chaos that would ensue. And you know, maybe there are some things we could have predicted. We might have predicted that LSU was going to win the national championship and then stink again the next season. Um, we might have predicted some, some weddings for a couple, a couple folks. Um, Maybe there are some things we were hoping for on January 1st. There are surely some, some good things that have happened, but it's also brought its fair share of uh, curveballs. And that illustrates uh, something that is true of all created beings. And I want to uh, let that truth uh, remind us this morning of how small we are and how big God is. We are bound to time. We, we can think back on things that have happened in the past, but we can't relive them. Uh, the memories fade over time. We can guess what might happen in the future. And there are some people whose job it is, you know, meteorologists and different people whose job it is to try to guess what's going to happen, but we cannot see it with certainty. We cannot access or experience the future or the past with the same clarity as we can the present, what is in front of us right now at this very moment. And put very simply, God is not like that. He is not like us in that way. He is not bound to time. For each one of us, there was a time when our lives had a definitive beginning, when we went from non-existence to existence. And part of what it means to be a created being is that we experience time as a succession of moments. God is not like that. He is totally distinct and unique in this way. And that truth that God is outside of time ought to affect, as we're going to see this morning, how we live moment by moment throughout our lives. So let's read together in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you, to, ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pause there and pray together. Lord, we are thankful for how big you are, and uh, words cannot adequately express how distinct and unique and holy you are, how set apart you are from us, 
And yet, Lord, you have seen fit in your wisdom to speak to us in ways we can understand. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, Lord, that we would not be like those that Peter mentions who, who twist your word into whatever we want it to mean. But, Lord, that we would humble ourselves and submit ourselves to what you have said. And, Lord, that our vision of you would be enlarged this morning. And, God, that that would lead us to holiness and to repentance. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I want you to notice a little contrast this morning. Peter said back in verse 5 that the false teachers deliberately overlook this fact. And the fact that he was talking about was that God has intervened in history, that he created the heavens and the earth by the power of his word, that he then deluged that world with water, and that he has promised that by the same word that he created and by the same word that he flooded the earth, he is going to, uh, he has stored up this same world for fire. And he says that they deliberately overlook this fact. And now he says in verse 8, notice the contrast, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. So there are some who willfully ignore or willfully deny the truth. Others get confused or they forget truth. And so Peter is reminding us not to overlook this fact and the, the very things that he is saying are the means by which he is helping us not to overlook them, but to remember and to live accordingly. In particular, the fact that he wants us not to overlook is that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, this is one of many verses in the Bible that teach uh, an attribute of God that, that I think is most helpfully summed up by, by speaking of his timeless eternity. And there are basically three marks of God's timeless eternity that God has no beginning, He has no end, and He is not bound to a succession of moments. God has no beginning, He has no end, and He is not bound to a succession of moments. That is what it means for God to be eternal. To say that God is eternal means that He never came into existence. There never was when he was not, and he will never cease to exist. He simply is. Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. But the Bible says more than that. The Bible says that God has no beginning, that he has no end, but it says more than that. It's not just that God has and will exist through all time. It's that he exists above and outside time. He's the one who created time. Before God created time, time didn't exist. Just as space and matter and every other thing that we experience in the world, He created out of nothing, time is the same way. He's the one who put the sun and the moon in the sky and said, this is what a day is. And so He exists above and outside time. He is not bound to time in the same way that we are. He has a totally different perspective on time because He does not experience it as a succession of moments. So God can obviously distinguish between times. Sunday is not Monday, is not Tuesday, is not Wednesday, and so forth. 
but everything that we think of as past, present, and future, God sees all of it with perfect clarity. This is what Peter means when he says that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. To those of us who are bound to time, when we try to think about something that happened a thousand years ago, that seems awfully distant. That was before the internet. That was before, you know, toilets. That was before a whole lot of stuff, sliced bread and all that great stuff. A thousand years ago was a long time ago to us. But to God, He sees it just as clearly as He does what we now call the present. This moment right now, you're hearing my voice with clarity. You're seeing me with clarity. God sees a thousand years ago just as clear as He does right now. And whether the return of Christ is in the near future or whether it's in the distant future, it might seem to us like it's taking an awfully long time. I mean, you think back to when you were a kid and how long... Christmas took to come back around the next year. Well, that's why we say something as slow as Christmas, because it seems like it's taking forever. But it's not taking forever to God, because He sees the return of Christ just as clearly as He sees this moment, what we call the present. So God is not being slow, Peter says. He simply has a different perspective on time. He sees history from a different vantage point than we do. So if we can speak from our perspective, because that's how we have to understand this, we can't put ourselves in God's shoes. We can't see time the way He does. So if we can speak from our perspective, God has a purpose in waiting. This is how I want to try to summarize the the big idea of this passage, that there is a purpose to God's patience. There is a purpose to God's patience. Patience. As Peter says in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. If we if if we said nothing else than that today, I think that would be incredibly helpful for us. Because sometimes all, all we need to know is, is that there's some kind of purpose behind this thing that sometimes seems so arbitrary and so chaotic, right? To just know that there is somebody who has a plan, right? So, so imagine that, uh, that you're at the doctor's office. I'm sure probably every single one of us have had to wait in a doctor's office before. If you've never had to wait in a doctor's office, then man, you know, come tell me your secrets, right? Imagine you're at the doctor's office and you've been waiting an unusually long time. And you just think to yourself, I mean, have, I, have they forgotten about me? Did they all go to lunch? You know, what, what is happening? What's going on here? But then a nurse comes to your, to your room and, and says, I'm so sorry that we're keeping you, but there was a patient in, in another room down the hall who, who went into cardiac arrest, and the doctor is, is dealing with that emergency right now. And, and maybe the nurse says, you know, we don't think it's going to be that much longer. They're about to take the patient to the hospital. Or maybe they, they say, you know, this is, might take a while, so if you'd like to reschedule your appointment, you can leave and you won't have to wait and you can come back some other time. It would take a really self-centered person to still be frustrated with the doctor in that moment, right? To say, no, 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 I don't think he needs to deal with that. He's got to come over here and, you know, look at these warts I've got or whatever it is. You know, he's got to come take care of me. Forget the person who's, you know, maybe about to die right now. No, no, a reasonable person would say, hey, take your time. 
Because if that were me, if I were in that person's shoes, I would want the doctor to take his time or her time as long as they need to, to help me. So I can be patient. I can be understanding because I know that there's a purpose. I know that the doctor's not finishing his round of golf. I know that he didn't go out for lunch and order a steak well done. He's doing something important. There's a purpose behind making me wait. And that's what Peter's getting at here. God's not being slow to fulfill His promise. He's not procrastinating. He's not dragging His feet about when He brings the end of all things to pass. He's being patient. And there is a purpose to His patience. <clears throat> and we can discern at least, at least two things from this passage that God is wanting to accomplish with this patience. Two reasons why, two purposes behind His patience. The first is the repentance of His people. God is being patient for the sake of the repentance of His people. Look again at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, we're going to think for a moment, for a moment about what He means by not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But I just want you to notice who, who are the objects of God's patience in that verse. The objects of His patience are His people. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, toward y'all. He's addressed this letter to believers. He's patient to y'all. So however you understand the rest of what Peter says in that verse... The objects of the Lord's patience are His people, and He's wanting them to come to repentance. Now, Peter's just mentioned back in verse 7, the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And the rest of the Bible affirms that there will be a universal judgment in which some will be given over to everlasting shame and torment. It's obvious then that, that not all people will reach repentance. So however we understand Peter there, we can't say, well, it looks like he's saying everybody's going to be saved. He, he can't mean that because it would contradict too much Scripture. There are some who will perish. There are some who will not reach repentance. So what exactly does Peter mean when he says that God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance? Psalm 115.3 says, uh, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. So... If God is sovereign, if He does all, if He's able to do all that He pleases, how can He want something to happen and that thing not come to pass? There are, there are a few ways we can answer this question. It's tricky, and some of them are, are more helpful than others. But I'll say that, that over the course of history, Christians have found it helpful to speak of God's will in more than one way because this is the way the Bible speaks of God's will. So here's how Christians have kind of found it helpful to summarize the, the different ways that the Bible speaks of God's will. There's what we can call His will of desire, what He wants to happen. And then there's His will of decree, what He wills to happen. And the thing is, God does not always decree that which He desires. Or to put it another way, sometimes God permits what he does not find pleasing. So let's take a step back away from this particular passage and we'll use a totally different example. God says, Exodus 20, 
you shall not murder, right? So let's ask a question. Does God want people to murder one another? No, that's very clear. He does not want people to murder one another. Follow-up question, do people murder one another? Yes, they've been murdering people since Genesis 4. Uh, the first brothers, one of them murdered the other. So murder's been happening a long time. So God says, says, I don't want you to murder people, and yet people keep murdering one another. Now, now let's ask a, a hypothetical, a theoretical question. Could God theoretically decree that humans were incapable of murdering one another? I think the answer has to be yes. He made it so that we can't flap our arms and fly. We can build airplanes. We can get helicopters and all that kind of stuff, but I can't walk outside and just start flapping and take off. He, he, he made it so that we can't breathe underwater. I can go scuba diving with an oxygen tank, but I, I don't have gills. I can't. It's not within my nature to be like a fish and to live underwater forever and breathe that way. So God, God is the one who made those rules, right? He's the one who said, no, Matt, you've got to breathe air. You can't breathe water. Matt, you can't go outside and flap your wings and just take off, as fun as that would be. So God could have made it impossible for me to kill someone, and yet He did not do that. So according to God's will of desire, He says, you shall not murder. I don't want you to murder people. But He does not decree that we are incapable of murder. He permits that which is unpleasant to Him. And lest we go way, you know, mind-blowingly deep, think about the, the center of the Christian faith is the murder of the Son of God. He permits that which is unpleasant to Him. In a similar way, God asks this question in Ezekiel 18, verse 23. He says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And lest we misunderstand the rhetorical question, he says explicitly a few verses later, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. God does not delight in death. He does not find it pleasing. He does not take pleasure in the judgment of the wicked. God does not wish that any should perish, in the words of 2 Peter 3. But He also does not decree that all should be saved, because all will not be saved. Well, we could think about that until our brains exploded. Um, and melted into a puddle. But I, I don't want us to just kind of, you know, get so lost in the weeds that we forget what is really clear and straightforward in this passage. The takeaway is really straightforward, that the purpose of God's patience is that His people would repent. So let's think about this. If, if you, right now at this moment, are in Christ, you've repented of your sins and you've trusted in Christ and you have been grafted into the true vine, that is because God was patient. It's, it's, that's true on a big scale. If, if Christ had returned in Peter's lifetime, none of us would have ever been born, let alone ever reached repentance. So God reveals His grace by, by being patient with humanity. So yes, humans continue in their sin, 
but there are also some in every generation who come to repentance. Of course, at some point, God will bring the end of all things to pass. At some point, the opportunity to repent will cease. But until then, God is being patient, and there's a purpose to His patience. You don't even have to look in that sort of big scale. You can just think about your own lifetime, even if you're not incredibly old. The fact that you have life and breath is a sign of God's patience toward you. So I, I want to exhort us, as Paul does in Romans 2, not to presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience because, Paul says, God's kindness, His patience, is meant to lead you to repentance. So the, the first purpose of God's patience is the repentance of His people. He gives us time to, to hear the gospel, to trust in Christ and repent, and to escape the death that is to come, the destruction that is to come. The second purpose of God's patience is the sanctification of His people. God has not only willed that we would repent, but that we would be holy. Look at verse 10. He says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Um, this is what Peter's describing here is an utterly transformative event. When he says that the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, the phrase heavenly bodies refers to the elements of creation. So it's almost a way of describing the building blocks of the world we see. You know, as we've sort of advanced in science, we have, have managed to see smaller and smaller that the things that we can see uh, are, are built on things that we can't see, on molecules, on protons and electrons and neutrons and all these things. What Peter is describing here is such a decisively um, transformative event that even those, even down to a molecular level, everything is going to be destroyed. Now, we've seen how Peter compares that final judgment with fire to the flood in the Old Testament. He, he said in, in the passage last week that by means of, uh, of these, that is water and the word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. So he compares um, the flood in the Old Testament to this day of judgment that is to come. And he even speaks of the world that then existed and the heavens and earth that now exist being stored up for fire. So when you read the story of the flood in the Old Testament, nothing in that story gives us any indication that, that the earth that existed literally perished and was destroyed completely and then replaced by a new earth. So I'm not sure, I honestly don't know how literally we're meant to take Peter when he describes the heavens and earth being melted and dissolved. Does he mean that the current heavens and earth are going to be replaced by a new heavens and new earth, or does he mean that they'll be so utterly transformed 
by this fiery event as to be considered a new heavens and new earth? I, I'm not sure. What is clear, however, is that all of creation is going to be transformed and made new. There will be nothing about this world that will be untouched. And over and over, in, in, the, in the New Testament especially, the hope of believers is not that one day we're going to be transported off of earth to some place called heaven. Our ultimate hope is the renewal of all things and the joining together of heaven and earth into one place where righteousness dwells. You read the prophets in the Old Testament and what they describe is God coming down to live and Jerusalem filling the earth with the glory of God. And what you see in the book of Revelation is I see a new heavens coming down, descending to this new earth, this heaven and earth colliding into one place where righteousness dwells. And the reason why it's going to be the place where righteousness dwells is because it's going to be the place where Jesus dwells, where He is. That's what's going to make it new. That's what's going to make it good. As Peter says in verse 13, but according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But here's the thing. Over and over and over in the New Testament, you can see this in Paul's letters, you can see it in Peter, you can see it in John's letters. That hope of what will be affects what we do today. Because that new heavens and new earth is going to be a place where righteousness dwells, then we should be pursuing righteousness today. Because all things are going to be made new, we should be trying to live as new people today. This is why I say that the purpose of God's patience is the sanctification of His people. Notice the question that Peter asks in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? These false teachers that were in the church um, that were questioning, is Jesus really going to return? Is there going to be a day of judgment? What was happening in a very practical sense was they were pointing to God's slowness as they, as they said it, as they described it. They were pointing to His slowness, or as we might say, His patience. And they were using that as an excuse for sin. So they mistook the purpose of God's patience. It's so far off. Is it really going to happen? Who knows? Just live how you want. Do what you want. Do what you find pleasing. It's possible that we could be more orthodox than they were. That we could, we could affirm and agree, no, I believe Jesus is returning. I believe there's going to be a day of judgment. But still miss the point. And the point is that God wants His people to live lives of holiness and godliness. How many times throughout history, and it seems like it's become more frequent now, maybe it's just because we know more now, but how many times have we heard these people who try to discern the signs of Christ's coming? This year has been a, a feast for those folks, hasn't it? And we should want to know all that God wants us to know. So I'm not saying that we should just you know, say, I don't care. No. But I want to say this in love. It is arrogance and foolishness to try to know what God says is unknowable. 
He has told us, I don't know how he could be any more clear, that you're not going to figure it out. You're not going to know it. Here in verse 10, Peter says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Jesus said the same thing. Paul said the same thing. So the primary question that we ought to be concerned with is not, when is it going to happen? Is it about to happen? Does this thing in the news mean that it's about to happen? Forget all that. The question is, what kind of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Not when's it going to happen, but what should I do today because it's going to happen one day? So whatever we think about the quote-unquote end times, if it does not lead us to pursue holiness, if it does not drive us to be more like Jesus, then we have missed the point. God's purpose is not that we should know precisely when the return of Christ will take place. His purpose is that the return of Christ sometime in the future will lead us in the present to lives of holiness and godliness. So rather than obsessing over what God says we cannot know, wouldn't it be wiser and more God-honoring to focus on what He has made clear? And what He has made very clear is what kind of people we ought to be today. As I... Um, as I struggle on my own path of sanctification, I have found this truth of God's patience to be incredibly comforting. And what I found is that sometimes um, in my life I ping pong between two extremes and, and I see this in people that I talk to that they, they sometimes do the, the, the same thing. They ping pong between one extreme and the other. The one extreme is just absolute despair over you know, how many years I've been walking with the Lord and yet I still struggle to do this very basic thing that God calls me to do. You know, I've been walking with the Lord so many years and yet I still struggle to, to, to read my Bible or I still struggle to pray or I still struggle to fill in the blank or I still struggle to put away this particular kind of sin or whatever the case may be. So that's one extreme is despair. And the other extreme is just complacency where we think, man, you know, that, that seems so distant. And, and after all, God is so patient with us that, you know, I could kind of just, just ease up in the race a little bit, just sort of give up a little bit in the fight. And it's not an accident that God describes the Christian life as a race and as a war and as a fight. So God is infinitely patient with His children. Sometimes God is more patient with us than we are with ourselves. And so there's no need to despair. There's no need for us to grow impatient with others because God's not just patient with me, He's patient with you too. And so there's no need for me to, to be impatient with you when God has been so patient with me and with you. At the same time, we need to be careful that we don't allow God's patience to become an incentive for complacency where we just say, well, you know, the return of Christ is so far away. I have so much more time in my life to be sanctified that I can kind of take a, a few weeks or a few months or a few years off. We should have an urgency about being diligent to confirm our calling and election, as Peter said earlier in this passage, in this chapter about, about uh, striving to follow Jesus in paths of righteousness.
So there should be some urgency, but we should also be equally comforted by the truth that God is unendingly patient toward us. Sanctification is a lifelong process. I don't know how many years God's going to give me. I don't know how many years He's going to give you, but I know that until I die or Jesus returns, He's going to be sanctifying me. Don't, don't allow that to, to lead you to complacency, but also don't let it lead you to despair because God is patient. There's time. You're not supposed to be uh, perfect. You just should be on the path of progress toward Christ-likeness. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in, in just a moment here, an opportunity for us to respond to God's Word. And, and so I just want you to kind of evaluate your own heart and ask yourself uh, where you find yourself today on that path. Um, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're on the, the path of righteousness, the path toward Christ-likeness, the narrow path as Jesus called it, um, do you find yourself right now in a, in a place of, of you know, sort of despair over your, your lack of progress in the faith, or do you find yourself in a place of, of complacency and ease? That's a question I can't answer for you. It's one you have to answer for yourself. I'm also mindful that, uh, that there could be someone listening to my voice right now, whether in this room or, or somewhere on the magical interwebs, um, that the Lord, the Spirit of God is, is, is working in your heart to, to help you to see that, um, that He has been patient with you up until this very moment, and He's now giving you an opportunity to repent. I've had... Uh, the privilege and opportunity at times to, to look people in the eye and say, God has been patient with you. He has been patient with you in your life to give you this opportunity. Do not presume on His patience. And so whether I can look you in the eyes this morning or whether I'll look into the camera right there and look you in the eyes, figuratively speaking, don't presume on the patience of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for how long-suffering you are with us. Lord, you have told us in your word that you are kind and merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and patience. And yet, Lord, you will not um, withhold guilt from the guilty. And so, Lord, our only hope we confess this morning is the righteousness of Christ, that we would be united to Him and that He would bear our guilt, that He would bear our shame, that He would bear uh, Your wrath in our place. And so, Spirit of God, I pray that You would move us today away from complacency, but also away from despair, Lord, that there would be no one who thinks that they are too far gone, but that there would also be no one who would think that they have no need of repenting and trusting in you anew. So, Lord, would you move in our hearts? Would you work in us? Would you uh, draw us to, to Jesus and help us to come to him? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.